0: I'm excited to be here uh, this morning to be able to declare the Word of God as we would open it together in uh, Daniel chapter 1. I invite you to do that. Um, At the same time, I want to uh, welcome also those that have joined online. I understand that not everyone can be here in person, but uh, thankful for each one that joins us uh, one way or another. Um, I've started preaching through Daniel. I'm still in chapter 1 for the most part, as there were a number of themes that we were exploring there and uh, today will be the last uh, message from uh, Daniel chapter 1 in what i would uh, have come to understand might be the most significant theme of all in this chapter uh, and so we'll uh, get to that <clears throat> as we read it starting from verse 1 and we'll stop around verse 8 in the 3rd year of the reign of Jehoiakim king of Judah came Nebuchadnezzar king of Babylon, unto Jerusalem, and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, with part of the vessels of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar, to the house of his God. And he brought the vessels into the treasure house of his God. And the king spake unto Ashpenaz, the master of his eunuchs, that he should bring certain of the children of Israel, and of the king's seed, and of the princes, children in whom was no blemish, but well-favored and skillful in all wisdom, and cunning in knowledge, and understanding science, and such as had ability in them to stand in the king's palace, and whom they might teach the learning and the tongue of the Chaldeans." And the king appointed them a daily provision of the king's meat and of the wine which he drank, so nourishing them three years, that at the end thereof they might stand before the king. Now among these were of the children of Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, unto whom the prince of the eunuchs gave names. For he gave unto Daniel the name of Belteshazzar, and to Hananiah of Shadrach, and to Mishael of Meshach, and to Azariah of Abednego. But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself. We'll stop there in in, in mid-sentence for our reading this morning. As we look into what this chapter records of what took place in history was a very traumatic time. And I talked about that earlier, so we're not going to go real deep into that. But the the point that I'm going to, the the nuance that I'll point out this morning is how the Bible makes it very clear that God is in charge. The Lord gave victory to um, this king for them to overtake Judah. The Lord gave the king into his hand. God is sovereign even when we wonder if he's exercising his sovereignty or how can it be that he is sovereign, or if he is sovereign, why is he permitting this or that or the other thing? He has his purposes. Even in the midst of calamity, trauma, and evil, God works out his plan. And this was true in the history of the children of Israel. There's a situational irony here in the fact that Nebuchadnezzar comes from the land of Shinar, or this is a region in Babylon, where he comes and he invades uh, Israel and takes some of the sacred vessels from the temple that God had instructed Moses and some of the skillful artisans in the time of Israel to build these things. Um, sacred uh, articles from the temple, and he takes them and puts them in his idolatrous temple. The irony here is is that 1,300 or so years earlier, God called Abraham out of the land of Babylon and that region, out of the land of idolatry into the land which became Israel, um, to give him a new identity away from idolatry. And yet, over time, Israel had gone back into an identity of idolatry. And so God says, okay, you've taken on an identity of idolatry. We're going to take you back into the land of idolatry. And in that process, I'm going to purge you out of your idolatry. Isn't that an ironic situation? How God works. So in that sense, it was both a judgment and an expression of mercy, because God, in his sovereignty, wanted to preserve the nation, and he went to great lengths to preserve them as a nation, because he had future plans for them, um, not the least of which would be the coming of the Messiah, of which we are in a season starting to celebrate. But if we look at Daniel and his friends, as they are now taken from that culture into this culture, and immersed in something here. We see that um, they are immersed in the learning, in the literature, in the language, in the education, in the worldview of this new culture. It's a program of indoctrination. The The learning, that refers to the literature. We learn a lot from literature. That's how culture is learned, from the arts and literature and so forth. That's how you catch culture. Um, and from that, you catch a worldview. From that, you, want, you build your sense of identity. We're going to be talking about that primarily uh, this morning. The tongue of the Chaldeans, that was an elite group within the Babylonians, and they were going to indoctrinate these elite children from Israel to work for their purposes, form in them a new identity. And the reason I use this word identity, because one of the things that is happening here that also forms culture and identity is they're given new food, but even more foundationally, new names. Now think of the significance of being renamed. You're taken captive and placed in a completely new culture that is hostile to your worldview and to your values, into the values of Jehovah that they were raised to believe, and They're now immersed into this idolatrous place and have their names changed. Just think of this, shall we say, violence done to their identity. This uh, is, is tremendous significance in there, symbolically, um, in the sense that, that that's an, a, an imposition of authority upon them. If you name something, that implies you have authority over that you know a business owner has the authority to name his business parents when they receive a, when a baby is born to them have the authority to name that child and so forth and so if someone is going to come along and say no you are no longer dan you are a different name that that's an imposition of authority they don't have authority to do that but yet this is part of their indoctrination program that they're in a sense completely intending to change their identity and that's really, really foundational. Um, but we see uh, through these four friends, and I'm sure other faithful ones, uh, that retained their Jehovah identity, even in the midst of this tremendously influential indoctrination program. And that gives us hope, because we can do the same by the power of Jesus Christ, and we'll uh, talk uh, about that. So what do I mean by identity? I'm going to suggest that this theme of identity, which I will attempt to describe here from the scriptures, is tremendously foundational to each one of us. Such that it's much more sort of felt than it is really understood or articulated. And so I'm going to be weak in somewhat articulating it. This is something I'm just uh, learning about. But it's foundational to who you are, the kind of person you become, foundational to how you think, how you respond, your behaviors, your stability in life. Everything is based on how you have built your identity. And to a large degree, we don't even understand or are not necessarily aware of how our identity is formed. It just sort of happens and every culture has a way of doing this to its citizens. It doesn't ask our permission. it just sort of is. It just sort of happens. And in different cultures that happens in different ways. So by identity, I mean by this is the definition, in a sense of being yourself and not someone else, uh, that condition or character as to who or what a person is. The, the qualities, the beliefs that distinguish and identify you from everywhere everyone else that has ever lived on the face of the earth. So that would be your, your attributes. You've got physical attributes of how you look, your height and your weight and your size and your skin color and hair color and eye color, um, and so forth, um, as well as other. you've got your skills, your, your gender, your name, your language, your, your DNA, your biology, Uh, Your ethnicity, your personality, your character, values, knowledge, uh, mental skills, your likes and dislikes, your desires, your hopes and dreams and fears, all of these, in a sense, have a piece of who you are and is is a description of your identity. So in a sense, it's this sense of self, a sense of worth, and who validates or affirms this for you. Uh, this sense of worth. So that's these three components: the sense of self I just described. The sense of worth is: Am I valued? Do I matter? Am I important? Do I make a difference in this world? If if I if I was never born, would the world be the same as it is now because that I am born or that I am in here? Or if I disappeared, would anybody miss me? Would anybody care? Uh, am I loved? Do I have any influence? What can I do? What do I contribute? That's part of this sense of worth, because. Not only that we have a sense of self, but this sense of worth is, I think, uniquely human because we have been endowed by our creator with a sense of worth. Uh, But our society doesn't necessarily um, accept that and has created alternate ways of attributing a sense of worth. And connected to that, then, is this what I'll call the ultimate validator or affirmer. Who who do you give, in a sense, the authority or the permission to affirm that you're living up to your values, that you are actually worth something. Who who tells you that, and and who um, makes you feel that you are valued, and so forth. And there's uh, variations on on what that can be, uh, and uh, and so forth. And in a sense, you know whether it's a, a parent that you look to for that, or someone else in the family, a spouse. Um, those that are involved in the dating game would look for that in their romantic partner. It could be friends, work peers. Uh, do I do it myself? Nobody else tells me what I'm worth as I determine that of myself. That's a way of forming identity. Or do I give that to God? He is the one that affirms who I am, who you are. And we'll look at the scriptures about that. And in a sense, the more you esteem a particular person, the more powerful a validator they become. For you, So now, if we just look at these concepts here and apply it to Daniel and his three friends, you know, their sense of self, their sense of worth, and who's going to validate them, how that was completely changed for them. Their sense of self, even their name was attacked, in a sense, by it being it changed. And their sense of values, no longer Jehovah to be worshipped by Jehovah, they're immersed in idolatry. And who is going to validate them? It would be the king that would validate them because he's given them all these things. And after three years, they're going to stand in his presence and he's going to give them approval of how great they are and use them for his purposes. Um, And the pressure. So you can imagine that pressure that they had to be able to change, to conform to this new system. And that would have been true especially for them because they were targeted in this way among others. But in general, all of the captives that had come would have been subject to varying degrees of these kinds of pressures, being slaves in a land of idolatry. And there would be the whole uh, range of pressures that they would feel of how much are they going to conform to this new system of idolatry? How much are they going to retain and resist this influence, this um, uh, war on their identity, shall we say, and retain their identity uh, rooted in Jehovah? Or how much are they gonna maybe suppress that and just accept what the culture is imposing or forcing upon them? And of course each of them would have had a range of experiences and would make decisions along a whole spectrum. And you can sort of see the challenges that would come from that as in a sense we are, we've always lived in a time where that spectrum exists and in some ways it's just being heightened and challenged in new ways that we have not experienced before. But it comes down to At the root of that, and how we respond to that, is our identity. And one way maybe I can talk about how this can be challenged, as these these were young people, uh, teenagers, most likely um, elite teenagers in their Jewish culture, um, going in a sense to higher education. Um, That happens in our culture, where there is this element of danger, as much as higher education is uh, beneficial and necessary to, to function in certain ways uh, in our society, the, beware that the higher education, at least the, 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 the predominant public uh, education system in our country, is not morally neutral. And it does have a way of imposing identity formation on its students um and uh, it it's definitely an anti-god uh, environment and so if you are not firm in your faith and you enter into that culture beware um you can uh, come out suffering a lot of casualty um if you don't know how to defend the truth of who Jesus is that may you may feel that being ripped to shreds um and so i encourage all young people whatever age you are become equipped in the knowledge of the Word of God, in who Jesus is, and have your identity formed around that so that you can be much more stable and equipped to be able to resist those anti-God forces. And we have Bible studies, small group Bible studies, that are designed to do exactly that, and I encourage you to get plugged in to those kinds of resources, those kinds of um, Bible study and fellowship in order to build that So, if we look a little bit more about what identity formation is, um, we're going to talk about it in three ways. There's a traditional way of identity formation that has been happening for thousands of years. There's a more modern way of identity formation and how that has more recently happened in the modern uh, several generations. Of course, there's a continuum and development in between that. But there's many places in the world where the traditional sense is still in effect, But the third option is neither of those, and that is the gospel method of identity formation, of what Jesus brings, which is different than both of those, foundationally different than both of those. And so sometimes, you know, when I say traditional, sometimes we might might think, well, we need to get back to the traditional way of identity formation and living that way. And sometimes uh, Christianity is misperceived as that being that and sometimes you may hear phrases, people, well, you know, remember the good old days, and, and this country was founded on Christian values, and so we need to get back to X time period, 50 years ago, 100 years ago, whatever time period you want to pick, uh, because that's what things were better, um, and get back to those values and so forth. And maybe to a certain degree, there's elements of truth in that, but the gospel identity is foundationally different than that. And so... Uh, when we as believers proclaim the gospel, we are not calling people merely to change from a modern identity worldview back to a traditional one, but rather from both of those into a gospel-centered identity formation. So what are these? Um, The traditional identity talks about how The values are determined outside yourself. You don't determine what's right or wrong. You conform to what is right or wrong. Moral values. There is a sacred order. There is a a a moral absolute, and we need to conform ourselves to that, uh, to those values and standards. And then, so the your society would then validate you as you are a good person when you conform to these. Things and the reverse, in a sense, the problem that this view is the problem with the world—is when people don't conform to what is universally good. And if everyone would just do that, this world would be a better place. And so we can see certain some elements of that are borrowed from the gospel-centered identity, because the gospel definitely does change behavior. The gospel does teach that there is an absolute moral value, good that we need to conform to. And so primarily, it looks like you have to conform and you need to fit in and you get approval from people. Uh, kind of stuff your feelings, just get the job done. Um, but the risk of that, of course, is it can make an idol out of those whom you choose to validate, which would be typically your family. You live for your family, you live for your parents to please them, you live for your kids to please them or raise them. Um, and the risk there is you, you can't count on people only to be your ultimate validator because people will fail you. If it's your parents, eventually they will die. And if they were your ultimate validator, now what are you going to do? A piece of your identity is completely stripped away. Um, if it's your kids who validated you, um, if they, they move off uh, and develop a life of their own, then you'll be devastated because so much of a piece of your life was ripped away. If our identity is founded on these kinds of things. Um, So, in a nutshell, that's what that is. In contrast to that, shall we say, the exact reverse of this would be the modern identity formation, and that comes out of a culture of relativism, postmodernism, the denial of absolute truth, the rejection of God for sure, and in there, the values are determined inside yourself. No one externally tells you what's right or wrong. You determine what is right and wrong for you. And no one else can tell you that, and you resist all um, external uh, forces uh, or standards that tells you otherwise, and you determine that based on your feelings, on your rationale, on your intellect, um, however you like to decide that. And you form your sense of self and your sense of worth, and you are your own ultimate validator. Nobody else tells you whether you're living up to being a good person or not. You tell that yourself, and you are your own person that pats you on the back. Um, And that view says, the problem with this world is the fact that there are people telling me that there is a good out there that I need to conform to. And if we can just get rid of that idea of absolute truth, then the world would be a peaceful place and we can all function together in harmony as each one just lives out their own sense of values by themselves and validates themselves in that. Well, you can, that's probably more obvious in how that view clashes with the gospel Um, and doesn't work. You become enslaved to your feelings. Your feelings are not consistent. And so if your values and your validating of yourself is based up and down on your feelings, that's very unstable. Um, and, and it just doesn't work to be your own ultimate validator. How, how empty is it to just merely praise yourself? Oh, I'm just such a great guy, and I'm, I'm just doing all the right things. That, that just sort of feels empty. We ultimately end up turning to other people to validate us, and validate our ideas. And this identity places a tremendous amount of um, emphasis on romantic partners to validate one another. And you can see that that uh, is, is sets up for failures because there's multiple relationships. As soon as someone doesn't value or validate me very much anymore, it's like, okay, I'll move on and find another validator and become their romantic partner. And it's just a string one after another of series of relationships. Each one um, just... Uh, as it moves on, missing and n- failing to fill the emptiness that is uh, in us. It's very fragile. If someone disagrees with you, you feel attacked as a person. And you can't even have a rational conversation about that because you just feel attacked. Um, and we see a lot of that happening uh, in the world. It's not merely just having a rational conversation with disagreements, um, but they uh, they feel um, attacked, and it's fragile. And the idolatry in it, it makes an idol out of the self, out of personal rights and freedoms. So in con- that's really short, uh, shall we say, an overview of these two, and there's a continuum in between, and there's a much deeper field of study than I understand in these kinds of things. But let's move on to what's most important, is the gospel-centered identity formation, and how Daniel and his friends even though they didn't know the gospel as we know it, in terms of Jesus and his death and resurrection on the cross and his uh, recreation of new life, um, they definitely knew Jehovah God uh, and uh, had their identity firmly formed in him, and that's why they were able to uh, even uh, thrive in this hostile environment. So this identity in Christ from the gospel that we are invited to participate in or receive the benefit from. And again, I am not calling people from rejecting the modern identity and moving towards traditions. That's not what we're talking about. In Christ, it's something entirely different. And so, of course, no one does this perfectly, shall we say. We're all striving, and to certain degrees we have elements of the traditional identity ingrained in us and elements of the modern identity ingrained in us. Um, Uh, But as we live out more and more the gospel identity, these things get shed uh, from us, and we more fully reflect who Jesus is and who he has created us to become. So number one, it's the only identity formation that is actually received rather than achieved. What do I mean by that? Other identity formations and other worldviews are all, in a sense, performance Based, you do the right things. You are a good person. You are validated, and then you are accepted. In the gospel, we are accepted when we receive Jesus by faith. In a in a sense, the 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 repentance and faith experience is an identity crisis, as we realize that our identity um, is not sustainable. However, we've been building it, and our life is falling apart. And we turn to Jesus in repentance and faith. That is an identity crisis. Who am I? Where am I headed? Why am I headed? What is the purpose and meaning of life? All of these things are identity crisis kind of questions. And when we turn to Jesus as he is the answer, he is the one that in a sense strips away as we lay down the old identity, which is dying and dead anyway and headed for destruction, and receive a new identity in him, which is by faith in Jesus Christ. And the belief in what he has accomplished on the cross and what and the righteousness that he has lived out, uh, that we participate in by faith. And that begins then this transforming work in our lives that we then uh, live out what this new identity is. But this is key to the gospel, which is different than every other worldview. I don't know all the worldviews, but those that have studied it say this. is different than every other religion, foundationally. In that sense, it is received, not achieved. And so when we believe by faith in Jesus Christ, he adopts us into his family. He makes us accepted in the beloved. It's a beautiful phrase in Ephesians. And Ephesians have a number of statements about identity. Um, which is just powerful and, and fantastic. But I'm not going to look at Ephesians this morning. I'm going to save that for Brother Thomas, because he's working through Ephesians. So I'm sure he's going to touch on that. We'll look at other statements in the Scripture that that speak uh, about that. That it's not based on our works. And our works are an outworking of our identity. The identity is received first, and the works are an outward identity of that, as opposed to sometimes as a misconception, of Christianity is that you work hard to reform your life, uh, stop sinning, and resist temptation, and, and come to church, and read the Bible, and, and uh, do your restitutions, and then finally you achieve a certain level in which you now receive the Christ identity. No, that's not how it works. That's a, a false impression of it. We, in repentance and faith, realize we are bankrupt to him, And say, Lord Jesus, make me new. We receive our new identity by faith at that point and are given power to overcome and begin living that out and being transformed, reading the scriptures, prayer, the spiritual disciplines, attending fellowship, um, and worshiping and resisting temptation by his power and so forth. It's the, the sequence is that, that order is really Important. But let's look at some verses in Colossians. There's some good statements there about that. If you want to turn to me, Colossians chapter 1, uh, verse 12. And this is uh, in a pattern in many of the epistles. The Apostle Paul knew this very well. How he, in the beginning of most of the epistles that he's writing, he describes the roots of their identity. How Jesus has transformed them. And then later on in the the epistles, there's in that same epistle, so in Colossians, that's true. It's true in Ephesians. It's true in Peter, uh, as as Peter is writing it. Um, Therefore, because of your new identity, therefore, because you've been made with Christ, this is how now you live it out. And then they give practical instructions for living. Uh, Colossians is like that too. And so for example, let's look at some of the statements at the beginning of Colossians. He says in verse 12, Colossians chapter 1, giving thanks unto the Father which hath made us meet, that means suitable, who has made us suitable to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints. So notice that identity. He has made us suitable. It's not performance pay that we make ourselves suitable and then He accepts us. He made us suitable. Adopted by God the Father. Um, and then it speaks of inherent, uh, an inheritance. An inheritance is received not because it's earned; it's received based on identity. And that is the same, then, of course, in the gospel it describes that that uh, analogy: the forgiveness of sins. If we go to Colossians chapter three, verse three, um, for you are dead. Uh, so here's, uh, chapter 3 is uh, somewhat of a transitionary uh, point There is It says, if you're risen with Christ, seek those things which are above. Set your affections on things above, not on things on the earth. But then he points back to an identity statement. For ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. There's an identity statement. The old person is dead, and your life is hid with your identity. Your new identity is in Christ. That's what we are too. Um, embrace if we want to go to Romans and see how he describes it in Romans chapter 8 verse uh, 15 for you have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear but you have received the spirit of adoption whereby we cry Abba Father the analogy of adoption is an identity statement when someone is adopted that is a new identity and that's what we receive by faith in Jesus Christ. If we then move on to after having received that identity into discipleship, the language of discipleship is exactly opposite to what is imposed upon us by the modern identity formation. Uh, if we look at this area of uh, in Mark, it's described in it, a number of Gospels, but I'll read it from Mark chapter 8, verses, starting with verse 34. Um, and when Jesus called the people unto him with his disciples also, he said unto them, whosoever will come after me, let him deny himself. So in the context of that identity here, deny your old identity and take up his cross and follow me. This is suffering. That's a little bit more in a sense, the traditional identity embraced suffering a little bit more. and talk about sacrifice for the good of your society, sacrifice for the good of your family, and so forth. The modern identity formation rejects that. You don't sacrifice for anything. No, it's about pleasure and success and my desires and my wants. And in fact, you might maybe uh, work on uh, stepping on other people in order to actually get that. You don't sacrifice for that. But the language of discipleship that Jesus calls us to is one of sacrifice and um, because of our new identity. Again, not sacrificed in order to obtain the identity. We obtain it by faith in Jesus Christ, and the result of that is a life of self-denial and sacrifice, as our I- self-denial in the sense of denying our old identity and the means of the, that which culture imposes upon us in trying to form our identity and conform to their means, deny those things, and take up our identity in Christ He picked up his cross, follow him. For whosoever, and here's this, shall we say, um, I'm not sure what the right word is. It sounds like opposite language here, right? For whosoever will save his life shall lose it. But whosoever shall lose his life for my sake and the gospels, the same shall save it. You know, identity formation in, in, whether it's the traditional or the modern way, it's all about myself and how I'm going to hang on to my life and who I am and don't let outside forces threaten that. But if we lay that down and take up our identity in Jesus Christ, that is the means by which we will actually have life because he offers the only one that offers eternal life. That works itself out into the more secure you are in your identity in Christ is foundational to how you are able to withstand hardship. You know, when times are easy, then maybe it doesn't show up so much, and you can sort of float along, and if the culture is, to a large degree, somewhat quasi-Christian, as it has been for many generations, you can just sort of float along and kind of be okay. Uh, but when times are hard, and when that is challenged much more, the security of your identity Um, in a sense, becomes more apparent. And it's always critical in order to have a secure identity in Christ. And I encourage each one of us to examine ourselves and to to do that. And we'll talk about a little bit how how to do that. Um, Because, you know, in that sense, you're stronger than to resist temptation, to endure hardships. You know, peer pressure is a phrase that I learned a long time ago as I was a young parent. In, in regards to parenting, but peer pressure is only as strong as family identity is weak. And so if you have a strong family unit, strong family identity, strong family ties, and we'll connect that then, of course, with strong ties to Jesus Christ, then outside forces will be relatively weak because you'll be strong enough to resist those. You'll recognize them, you'll be able to discern them, and you will be able to withstand them. By that power, but if you're in a family structure where family identity is very weak, and this is really important, then, of course for parents as we are raising children, the manner in which we structure our family and the kinds of activities that we do as family that invest in our children, uh, within the, the the framework of the gospel and loving our children, uh, teaching them they are valued, um, they're created in the image of God, um, and that's the identity that God gives them. And and we love them and are committed to them and we do family activities and, and we're with them when they're in their hardships, when they're crying and they've had a, a, a hard day, we're there to comfort them, we're there to pray with them, we can rejoice with their victories um, and so forth, being present in the family. Rather than being absent into all kinds of maybe exciting things outside the family, whether it's career development or hobbies or whether other kinds of pursuits, if those things are overtaking us and robbing us from that family investment, then our family identity is going to be weak and our children will be much more vulnerable to peer pressure because they need that sense of security. And at their vulnerable stage growing up, those are the means by which God has created for us to form that identity in them so that they become strong. But if that is missing, then they're going to look for that somewhere outside the family. And there will be places that will offer that. It will be a poor substitute, but it will appear to be that. Whether it's a gang, whether it's a friend group, whether it's getting into mischief, whether it's getting into some other causes, um, whatever the case may be, um, as parents, let's um, be inspired to train and raise our children uh, in that way. And uh, look for the uh, identity that comes in Jesus Christ. And so for someone who is not a believer yet, not a Christian, I urge you, this is an invitation to discard the old identity formation of whatever way you've been doing it and submit your way to Jesus Christ. Let him give you a new name, so to speak, a new life, a new uh, start, uh, and uh, this transformation. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new person. Old things are passed away, all things are become new by faith in Jesus Christ and what he has done. In his sacrifice, in his blood that offers to wash away your sins and give you redemption and power and victory over sin and the new life. And so for those that are believers, the encouragement then and the challenge for us is to grow in our ability, grow in our living out the identity that we have received, maybe recently, for some that have recently become Christians, or for others that have been Christians for 30 or 50 years, whatever it is, um, we always have ways of growing out more what our identity in Christ is. And so that's by the, the spiritual disciplines, reading the scriptures and being immersed in the scriptures, in prayer, in worship, in fellowship, um, things that engage our imagination, uh, that are aligned with the scripture. Uh, things that are repetitive, you know, memory verses and, and repeating them to us. Good stories, good music, uh, the arts. All of these kinds of things serve to form and solidify identity formation. And the culture knows it too because the culture is full of all kinds of arts and music and movies and narratives that capture the imagination and songs that may be stuck in our head because wherever we're exposed to it, Think about the message behind that and what kind of identity formation is happening there. If it comes from an anti-God source, you can be sure that it's not aligned with the gospel method of of identity formation. And you want to reduce those influences in your life and exposure to them and intentionally replace those with gospel-centered messages and movies and uh, uh the arts and music and so forth. In addition to logical teaching, rational teaching of what, you know, I'm describing this morning. Uh, beware of those influences. So I think, uh, finally, maybe we'll just, uh, as a conclusion, just read one verse from Ephesians chapter 4. Sort of almost like a therefore. Um, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 22 to 24. That you put off, and I'm going to somewhat paraphrase this in terms of identity language as we've been talking this morning, that you put off concerning the former identity, the old person, which is corrupt according to the deceitful lust and be renewed in the spirit of your new, of your mind and put on the new identity, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. Amen.